you are able, turn to the book of Daniel chapter 10. Uh, I'm sorry, Daniel 11. Daniel 11, and we will stand as we read Daniel 11, starting at verse 5. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great domain indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with, her, with his power. But she will be given up, along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortresses or the fortress of the king of the north. And he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their goods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may gain that he may again wage war up to his very fortress the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north then the latter will raise a great multitude but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a great multitude, uh, a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word. Help us, we pray, to see um, the importance of this history, even delivered by an angel to your prophet, even Daniel. Help us to understand and also to glean truth, but also see the necessity of the gospel, even in today's text. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Maybe you don't like studying about battles, and I know this is a, a lot of details of um, a queen, kings, and a lot of fighting going on. So you might say to yourself, well, why do I have to study all this stuff about battles? Aren't we here to study what it means to be a Christian? Well, according to Daniel 11, God is interested in history. God is interested in the history even of great wars of kingdoms rising and falling, because history, as people sometimes say, is not just a story, 
It's God's story. There will always be wars, but these particular wars are, are of such importance that they are recorded in, in Scripture because they pertain to God's people. And we'll find a little bit more of how that pertains. Earlier in Daniel 11, 3, you see in verse 3, it says, A mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority, and do as he pleases. This is Alexander the Great. He was able to conquer the Persian Empire by the age of 30. Um, some, I just found this out, um, but if, if you may be not aware of it, he was trained by Aristotle. Um, ooh, let, me, let me back. I have to look that up again. It was either Aristotle or Socrates. Uh, so anyway, it's probably Socrates. But anyway, um, he was trained in the classical Greek ways, and his, his purpose in making conquests is that he wanted to, what we call, Hellenize the known world. He wanted the whole world, the known world, to speak Greek. He wanted them to have a higher education. He wanted them to have that, the Greek architecture, the Greek, Greek ways of life. He wanted to have a unified commerce. I guess you can kind of say it maybe it sounds more like uh, the kind of thing with the World Trade Organization of something of that sort. But anyway, um, I want to give you a really interesting part of history that you might not be aware of. And I, I skipped this last time, but I'm going to put it in today's tonight's introduction. If you've heard of this historian named Flavius Josephus, Flavius Josephus was actually a Jew who was a general who fought against Rome during the early Greek-Roman wars, and he was taken captive, but rather than being made a slave, he was allowed to be an interpreter for Flavius. And I, you can almost, I guess you could say he, was, he seemed like he was adopted because he took the name Flavius. He took a Roman name. So he wasn't just Josephus, he was Flavius Josephus. But he wrote this. He wrote this. While Jerusalem was under Persian rule, this is the context, while Jerusalem was under Persian rule, this is what he wrote. Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, so he's, he's going into Jerusalem, the promised land, he's taking over the promised land, and he takes over Gaza, and they think he's going to go in and destroy Jerusalem. They don't know what he's going to do, but he's taking it over from the Persians. Alexander, when he had taken over Gaza, sounds familiar what we're dealing with, Gaza in, in the news lately. So Alexander had basically taken Gaza. He made haste to go up to Jerusalem. And Jadis, the high priest, you can say he was a little bit concerned about what was going to happen when Alexander came into the um, the city, he understood that Alexander was not far off, far off, so he went and made a procession along with the priests and the multitude of citizens. But this procession was venerable, and the manner of it was different than other nations. Other nations maybe, when they make a procession, it's kind of raucous, but this was maybe reverent. It was esteem. It had, it had some sort of esteem and veneration to it, right? says, Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priests stood in this fine clothing, and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with his mitre on his head, 
having the golden plate whereupon the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adored that name and first saluted the high priest. Now, one of his generals, which was older than him, who served his father, uh, Parmenion, he went up to Alexander alone, and he asked him, he said, how did it come to pass that you went and that you should go up and adore the high priest of the of the Jews? You see, he he thought that Alexander was going to uh, and give adoration to the high priest of the Jews. But this is what Alexander said: I did not adore him, but that God, who has honored him with the high priesthood, his high priesthood. So you might say, wow, Alexander seems kind of religious. Uh, he was very ecumenical, let's just say that. He, you know, he didn't say the God of heaven. He just said he, he was going to venerate that God, which if he went, when he went, when he was among the, when he was among the Persians and the Babylonians after he took over their land, he probably gave some adoration to their gods as well. And by his life, his very immoral life, we know that he was not a worshiper of the true God. You know what they did next? So here comes Alexander. He enters, the, he enters the city. He gives veneration to the God of the Hebrews, and he, he salutes the high priest. He doesn't destroy the Jews. He, he, he welcomes in, them into the kingdom. The Jews then show him the book of Daniel. They open the book of Daniel, and they read to him some of what is written in Daniel. And they declared that the Greeks should destroy the Persians. And it, it seems that they came to an understanding that he was the fulfillment of, in a large degree of this book of Daniel. Isn't that interesting? So he rose to great power, but then Alexander died at the age of 32 in 323 B.C. Again, we don't know the cause of why he died. Some suspect poison. Uh, la last week I heard another theory that it could have been that maybe he overdid it with his opium. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but Alexander uh, traded opium. He was the one responsible for uh, trading opium and bringing opium into Persia and India around the year 330 B.C. So then he died seven years later after introducing opium to these countries. Maybe he wasn't just trading opium, but maybe he was smoking it too, right? doing some drinking along with it. We don't know for sure. But um, as we look at today's text, what we're going to focus on is two main points. First, we're going to see the beginning of the war between the empires of Ptolemy and Seleucus. Or some say Seleucus. But uh, Ptolemy is actually, it's not spelled with a T, it's actually P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. So we're going to look at the, this war between the empires of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And then secondly, we're going to look at what this history has to do with God's people. So let's look at this first main point. The beginning of war between the empires of Ptolemy and Seleucus. Um, Daniel eleven fourteen it says, As soon as he... I'm sorry... Daniel 4.11, I'm sorry, I cited it wrong. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, 11.4. Getting it backwards. But as soon as he has arisen, Daniel 11.4, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four parts of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to another besides them. Okay, this came to pass. He died, his kingdom was split up into four, and none of his descendants were given the kingdom. Is all generals, his, his great generals. Uh, I think there was uh, a, the possibility of, that he actually had two kids who were murdered as children. Um, in verses 5 through 6, it then says, The king of the south, this is the, the empire of Ptolemy, the king of the south, that is Ptolemy, the empire of the Ptolemies, will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south, her name was Berenice, uh, will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. Okay, before we go on, the king of the south are the Ptolemies. They have Jerusalem, the promised land, Egypt. The king of the north, that's in relation to Judea, the king of the north, that's the one that has that massive majority region that was basically taken over by Alexander the Great. Much larger kingdom. And I think the reason, the reason why this, the Seleucid Empire took over the Ptolemies is because it, it actually had a greater region, greater resources, greater wealth. And that's why they were able to take over uh, in a large degree. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you something from uh, a, a group of scholars who wrote a commentary on this particular book of Scripture. And their names are Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. And I'm going to cite it for the, the next few sections here. They say this, Berenice, daughter of Ptolemy, she was... Um, she ended up trying to make a peace deal between the kingdom of the south, the Ptolemies, and the Seleucids. And she did this um, to try to make what they call this peaceful arrangement. It didn't go well. It didn't go well. Um, verse, middle of verse 6. She will not retain her power or her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. Now, verse 6 doesn't really give you the details. But given up here ends up being that she was given up to death. She was executed. She herself was responsible of assassinating other people as well. Um, by the way, think about this, though. You have the Ptolemies taking over the promised land in Egypt. Did you actually know that you actually had Greek, you, had, you actually had the occasion of Greek rulers sitting over the, the rule of, of uh, Egypt? Can you imagine that? A Greek pharaoh. 
a Greek-speaking pharaoh who doesn't even speak the language of the Egyptians at all. Greek pharaoh. Well, that's, that's what we had here. Um, so she died after, um, and then later on, Ptolemy dies. Antiochus took back Laodice, who, was then, who then poisoned him, and then caused Berenice and her son, again, they were put to death. And later on, there is the rise of this man named Seleucus Nicator. Seleucus Nicator is the one who became the ruler of the, the empire of the Seleucids. He's the one, Seleucus Nicator, is the one that raised up the great and mighty empire to the actual size, almost to the level that Alexander the Great had. So that's with Seleucus Nicator reigning. Verse 7. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. And that's uh, this Laodice is later put to death. Also their gods, uh, this is an interesting part in, in verse 8, also their gods, that's the gods of the Egyptians, their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the, the king of the north for some years. Now, why, why is it mentioned here, taking idols back to Egypt? Um, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that the historians show that uh, Ptolemy, that's Ptolemy Nicodor, he w had a sedition. In other words, there was some opposition. There was maybe a little bit of a revolt going on in Egypt. And what do you do if people are having a revolt and they're not happy? Bring them tons of silver and lots of golden idols. And what's really interesting is that the idols that... Ptolemy brought back to Egypt were the same idols that were taken captive by the Babylonians, and they haven't probably seen them for many, many, many years. So that's, that's how Ptolemy ingratiated the Egyptian people to him and his rule by bringing their idols back all the way back from the captivity in Babylon. And of course, the idolatrous Egyptians were very happy, and they, they adored Ptolemy because he brought idols back to them. Verse 9. Then the latter, that is the latter kingdom, will enter the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight the king of the north. Then the latter then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a great multitude, uh, greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with, with a great army and much equipment." Okay. Can I ask you a question? 
you don't have to answer, but just think about this. How can somebody give all these details that won't happen for generations? I, w I would say it has to be by the, the, the revelation of God. This stuff, all these great details, the young lady who's trying to make a peace deal between the two kingdoms yet fails, which one? Now, you don't, you don't know. Which, which kingdom is going to win? Well, we already know. We already know before even Alexander the Great is even born, which king is going to win, and namely, that king that, that's going to win is the kingdom of the north, and that's the one that does, in history, take dominion, the kingdom of the Seleucids, over that of the Ptolemies. Now, you might say to yourself, Maybe this is more detail than I need. You know, you really could summarize verse, verses 9 through 13. The two kingdoms had a great deal of fighting, and the kingdom of the north overtook the kingdom of the south. You could say it like that, but there are more details in here. And uh, to give you a little side note, um, you know what the secular scholars say? Oh, this, there's no way this was written. There's no way that this was written until after the rise of these kingdoms. It was written later. But from what I've understood is that the textual evidence supports plainly, and the historian Josephus supports plainly, that the book had been written for a great deal of time prior, and then was even showed to Alexander even before his kingdom even split up. So there's historical accounts of the Jews having this book of Daniel in their hands, which prophesied all these things, which actually came to pass, even according to all these details, which, by the way, we're not even finished with. I'm stopping the sermon at this point because I'm going to split this up into another sermon regarding the end of the war and what's going to happen afterwards. Now, you might ask, well, what does all these... Wars and intrigue and assassinations and all that have to do with us or the people of God at large. Now, the first part is going back to the history of God's people at that time, the Jews. They were smack dab in the middle of it. They were at the point where both kingdoms really kind of met, and they were the ones who, were, who suffered under the two kingdoms and their fighting over taking the land. Uh, I heard before that maybe the, the fighting over the area of the promised land was, would happen over a hundred years. They fought over this area of the promised land for over a hundred years. The Ptolemaic kingdom was a blessing to, to Israel, to the Jewish people. The Ptolemaic kingdom allowed them freedom of worship. The Ptolemaic kingdom allowed them to sacrifice. They allowed them to be able to produce the Greek uh, Old Testament scriptures, the Septuagint. Um, it, it gave them prosperity. They, they flourished and prospered. They had, again, they had that wonderful freedom of worship. And then later on, the Jewish proselytes in all these little areas throughout this empire had a Greek scripture passed around to them. That would have never happened if... The only place that Hebrew was spoken was, was in the Promised Land, and no one else had a scripture in Hebrew. 
and no one else spoke Hebrew. But the fact that the, the Old Testament scripture was placed into Greek means that God's word was able to be passed around to country after country after country throughout a great deal of the Greek empire. And that Koine Greek is the same Greek that I, I even look at today whenever I prepare a message and I have to look at a Greek word. It's the Koine Greek, the Greek that was written during this time under the authority of the Ptolemy Empire. So again, um, give you a little preview of what's going to happen later. The Seleucid Empire. Remember we, we talked about the Seleucid Empire amassing great armies and then eventually overtaking the Southern Empire kingdom. When they came in and took over Israel and the Promised Land, being a Jew was a terrible, terrible thing. They were persecuted. People were killed for having their babies circumcised. And from what I heard, even the families were killed if they had their babies circumcised. They weren't allowed to have a Torah. Their persecution made the persecution under places like China look like nothing. Because they had a great, grievous time under the Seleucid Empire. It is a beautiful thing, brothers and sisters, that in the United States of America, we have freedom. We have the freedom to worship. We have the freedom to go to church. We have the freedom to keep the Bible. We don't have people coming and inspecting our homes to see if we have a Bible and then taking them out and burning them. Uh, we don't have to worry about someone breaking down the door and, and putting us in prison for worshiping the God of heaven. From what I understand, I've hear, heard this before, that it's a rare thing in history to have a country that has such a long, long, long lineage of religious freedom. We need to pray that that continues. Because you don't know if it can... It, it, like the people who were under the Ptolemy Empire with great freedom, then all of a sudden the Seleucid Empire comes in and they're oppressed. Many of them are killed. Their temples desecrated. All, all this kind of crazy. We'll look at that stuff later. But having freedom is a great blessing and we need to pray that God continues to give us that freedom. Again, all this history was a preparation for the coming of Christ. The proselytes throughout much of the Greek empire, all having God's word, the Old Testament, was the foundation for them receiving the teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Because they were already were longing and looking for a Messiah because that's what they were taught from the Old Testament scriptures. So then when Jesus comes on the scene, Christianity spread to a much greater degree because of the establishment of a Greek empire. One last thing. There's a lot of details here in this reading. But this was not just Daniel waxing eloquent. This was actually the words of an angel sent from God to give Daniel all these details. The details were important to the angel because the details were important to God who sent the angel. So let's pray that sometimes we could bear with some of these, some of the details and the, the things that we might not think very important. And maybe it will encourage you to study a little bit more of the, the ancient world history 
which is part, again, of God's story. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for your holy word. We pray that you would help us to receive this, your word, delivered by an angel, even to Daniel, your servant. Help us to appreciate the established language and culture that was a foundation for the establishment of the early church. We thank you that you are the God who is sovereign. You are the one who is sovereign over rulers. You were sovereign over giving your people a kingdom that promoted peace and freedom under the empire of the Ptolemies. But even, O oh Lord, you were the same you are the same God who gave your people oppression and chastisement and even suffering, great suffering under the rule of the Seleucid Empire. Help us, free us from rulers that would seek to oppress and undermine the work of your church. Thank you for our freedom. Give us godly rulers so that we would have that freedom maintained. And help us, we pray, to do whatever we can to help maintain that way of life. By your sovereign hand, O oh God, work in our nation and work in our hearts, but bring revival to your, the people of this nation that they might receive and believe in your holy gospel and that you would spare our nation from those great woes. Help us in this, for we ask it all in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's... Turn to 545, the battle is the Lord's. Let's stand and sing 545.